Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror. Liverpool may need a favour from a certain Brendan Rodgers if they're to win the Premier League, but their fate is in their own hands at the Camp Nou on Wednesday. Barcelona dominate La Liga. They just won their eighth title in 11 years. They've even taken to using Lionel Messi as an occasional impact sub. But this Liverpool team has a different mentality. They'll fancy their chances, won't they, Johnny? I think they will. I mean, I, I fancy their chances too. I mean, but when, when you're facing a team that's got Lionel Messi in it, of course you can take nothing for granted. He has the ability to, to take any game or tie away from you. But there's quite a few things in Liverpool's favour. I think the way the tie works out is perfect for them playing at the, the Camp Nou first. Gives them the opportunity to employ the Anfield factor, of course, in the second leg. I think if you watch Barca against Manchester United, there was a big gulf in their performance between what they did at Old Trafford and, and, and what they did... <coughs> on their home patch. So I think if Liverpool can survive this week reasonably intact, um, they'll be in a great position. And what they've got is this incredible team ethic. They've got fabulous energy and, and intensity about them. The very things that I think an ageing, slightly for me, disorganised, unshapen Barcelona side. I know they've just won La Liga again, but I'm going on what I've seen in Europe. All those sort of things that they, they might be vulnerable to. And really, you know, often we do overblow individuals. I think this one is actually quite simple. If they can somehow control Messi, then the, the, the tie is theirs for me. Because mm, if you look at Barcelona, Darren, OK, Valverde is, is pretty universally underestimated in terms of... He's been there two years, they've won two titles. Under his uh, guidance, they've not lost the game against a top-nine club mm. in La Liga. But what does that tell us when push comes to shove on the real stage, which is the Champions League? Well, so far, his organisation, um, the, the players respect his organisation. And shortly after he came, he went on a couple of quite long unbeaten runs. Mm -hmm. He's not had the most distinguished career as an individual himself. He's only 55. But it, what he did do, I mean, for example, he was at Olympiacos. He won a couple of Super Leagues there. He left. Uh, he went somewhere else where it didn't work out. They asked for him to come back, went back, mm -hmm. won another Super League, won the uh, Cup as well. And as soon as he went to Barcelona, he imposed the way that he wanted to play on the side straight away. 
I think he's underestimated because he doesn't have the high, the profile of some of his predecessors. But what he does have is a respect to the players that are playing under him. And I don't think it is all about Messi. Um, it, it's a collective will in that team that is, does enable uh, Barcelona to dominate in La Liga and obviously to take the, the, the power away from Real Madrid who have kind of fallen way below their usual standards and do need re-energising. I think what helps Liverpool is the fact that they may well approach this game in the same way that they approach Manchester City, mm. a side that was last season imperious and nobody really knew how to, to fight against them and tended to park the bus and Liverpool fought fire with mm. fire. And I can see this being quite a high-scoring affair mm. because Liverpool will say, Let, let's not worry about them. Let them worry about us. They've got three forwards now at the top of their game. Mm. And uh, Firmino, there is obviously that suggestion he has that injury, isn't there? So mm. it remains yeah. to be seen whether that's bluff or whether that's serious and, 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 and we won't see Firmino for the remainder mm. of the season. But certainly as far as Liverpool concerned I think they'll look at City and how everyone believed City mm. were invincible and think to themselves we got past them we can get past Barca. Is that an interesting comparison Johnny because if you look at mm. the City side of last year certainly there were defensive frailties there are defensive yeah. frailties in this current Barca team aren't there? Yeah I, th I think Dan makes a very good point and, and you saw in that United first leg at Old Trafford they started off just trying to contain Barca there were two kind of respectful. There was a point about half an hour in, they were already 1-0 down where they realised, wait a minute, this this lot aren't, mm. particularly at the back, they aren't actually as sort of elevated as, as we thought. And when they had a go at them, when they were able to do that, the, the, there were real frailties. And I just think you know, Liverpool's so much better than Manchester United, they should be able to exploit those weaknesses. And if you think about more. the first 20 minutes of the second leg, yeah. where Rashford gets Again, in, uh, yeah. early on, you know, if that's Liverpool, they score. Yeah, and I think it's a very different tie. So, yeah, I I, I agree yeah. with you. I think that City disorganised probably might not be the word, yeah. but and, and they'll be typing on Twitter as we're speaking. <laughs> <laughs> but but I certainly agree yeah. with the point that they're there to be got at. I just think there's a, there's, there's a basic difference in in the intensity, and I think that's why we're seeing English teams do so well in Europe this year. That the, the Premier League at the top end really has you know kicked back on to to, to a, a high level again, um, and the, the fitness and, and the speed at which those very top teams are playing is incredible and, and, and is difficult for any foreign opposition because, not, you know, especially in a league that has been reasonably easy for Barcelona this year. You know, I mean, there's Real Madrid yesterday losing to the bottom place team again, lost 10 times. So it hasn't been the toughest league campaign for them. And they're an ageing team in certain places. I use the word unshapen. What I mean by that is you've got Messi who's still at the top of his game, but I think you've got other players in that team, and it is quite well set up by Valverde, but other players aren't able to do what deliver what they used to be able to deliver. Luis Suarez being one of them, but even Sergio Busquets is fantastic, fantastic defensive midfielder. But signs that he's the legs are just starting to go a little bit. That he's 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 allowing things to happen in in, in his watch that that he wouldn't normally have allowed in, in, when he was in his prime. And I just think Liverpool with their energy, that the commitment to press the pace at which they can break, I think they can really cause them problems. Mm. Johnny mentioned uh, Luis Suarez. As a forward, one of the best. As a human being, is he tainted by the whole Evra episode that he went through at Liverpool? That's a really, really <laughs> difficult question because I think if you look around, uh, certainly around English football, there are any number of people who 
are tainted by things that mm -hmm. have happened on and off the pitch. We lionise Gaza, for example, and yeah. Gaza's domestic problems are very well documented. Tony Adams, John Terry. Um, and so as far as Luis Suarez is concerned, as a man, yeah, I, I, I would agree, you know, is reprehensible. But I mean, and it's quite interesting, actually, because this is the area where we do judge people's qualities, either as men or as footballers, yeah. you know, which is obviously why we get player of the year awards. But I think as a footballer, he's peerless, peerless but he, he's right mm. up there. 176 goals and like 245 mm. appearances for Barcelona. He's as close to a goal machine as you could get mm. in Europe at the moment. I think as a, he, he's not even a supporting act. They're a strike partnership. Mm. They live next door to each other. Their understanding is almost telepathic himself and Messi. Um, it's a good, it's such a good debate, Mike, because you do, it's hard to separate the two, but it's our job to separate the two. And when we go into press boxes, if he, if he goes past four players and sticks one in the top corner, we have to judge him as a footballer at that point and not as a man. But at the same time, you know, he has done stuff, in, you know, as a footballer that is utterly reprehensible. As a father, you know, I watch a game with my kids and I think, well, you've got to cheer what he's doing, but I don't like him as a man. You know? Suarez, Suarez is, he, he, he raises questions about sport and why we watch it and love it for me. I, I, I've seldom been as conflicted trying to judge someone as him. I, you know, I lived in Liverpool at the time of the, the Ever Affair um, and so many of my Liverpool supporting mates were incredibly conflicted about it as well. I love watching him as a, mm. as a footballer. Mm. My goodness, what a brave and exciting and particularly at that point when he was at his real peak, what, what a special player. I think I've, I've interviewed him. I think he's somebody that would do anything to win mm. and that would include racially abusing someone. It would include biting someone. It would include handling the ball on the line in, 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 a, in a World Cup quarter-final. And that leaves you as the person trying to report on him and judge him. Where do you fit that in? You know, we, we, it's that old question about sportsmanship and, and, and the person off the pitch as well as the person on the pitch. John, you've got quite a good insight into mm. people. Do you do, would they would take him back even now at 32, wouldn't they? Yeah, but yeah, he wouldn't get back. I wouldn't, don't think he'd get in the team now. I don't think he's fit enough. But um, yes, he's still, he's still loved by supporters. Of course he is. I, I think at the time there was, a, there was a lot of emotion in the city and, and it was stoked, I suppose, by, if you think of Liverpool's history as a club, a club and, and probably as a city, a, a, a city and a club that's been put upon unfairly by the outside world. And there's, they've, they've got a tradition of trying to defend themselves and defend their own. And I think that's incredibly important and admirable. But I felt that under the, in the Suarez affair, it was channeled for the wrong cause. Yes, and Kenny Dalglish was part of that, let's be honest. Mm. I understand the reaction. We, we defend our own, but I think it was, as I say, that they, were, they were defending the wrong cause. But yes, I think, you know, all in all, they were taken back, but I think supporters are a bit wiser and more sanguine about maybe what he is and what happened at that particular time. But as you say, there are so many tainted players out there that, um, I don't know, how many football clubs can start to afford to pick yeah. people on on because it is it's a, it's a multi-dimensional debate this yeah. isn't it and Darren let's look at the other side we could almost like the positive power of football and Mo Salah went to New York last week voted in the top 100 of times most influential individuals in the world what can he do beyond the game well my son is part of um, uh, a Sunday league team, my, my nine-year-old son, 
and I was there, there's a Muslim kid on his team and his father was talking about how inspirational Mo Salah had been, both to him as an adult and a father and to his son. That's what Mo Salah's already doing, you know, a high-profile Muslim player in the British game, performing the way he is and conducting himself the way he is. And he used the platform for that time interview um, to talk about some of the cultural issues that have affected and surrounded uh, the Muslim faith for a long time, um, surrounding women, mm. and and just kind of opened up a lot of people's eyes that wouldn't otherwise have been prepared to listen, in a position to listen, or ready to listen, yeah. And so he's already doing it. He's already doing it on the pitch. People say he's had a below par season. Well, hang on a minute, he is, in 100 appearances, he's the fastest player ever to mm. reach 69 goals. I think as far as he is concerned, if he's playing the way he is in a season like this one, which is supposedly very poor, hmm. just think what it'd be like if he had a full pre-season under his belt and he was, it was at top gear. But, you know, I think a little bit like your previous question, this is a, 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 the wonderful thing about players like Salah is the social impact that he's having, as well as the footballing impact. And we are in an era now where a lot of footballers have a social conscience and they're exercising their voices and their platforms and they're using them to break down the barriers that have ex existed between different countries, different cultures and different ways of thinking. And for me, Salah is just a magnificent ambassador for football at the moment. Mm. And he can play a bit of it. He's not, he's not bad, is he? I mean, <laughs> he, he had a little dip this, um, this kind of winter I think he was tired. Incredibly <laughs> draining year that he'd had. Emotionally as well. Emotionally as well, the whole World Cup, the Ramos thing. Because we tend to gloss over that, don't we? Because, yeah. you know, Liverpool at the moment are metronomic. You know, they're winning, but winning with intensity. And that's got to take something out of people. Yeah, and we, we need to look at individuals sometimes. There is the intensity of Liverpool, the relentlessness. I, I interviewed Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who, who talked about when he was on the outside, when he was recuperating, it's only then that he realised how relentless the demands are on players, particularly Liverpool, where they're fighting on all fronts, they're expected to win, 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 and they've got this incredible sort of intensity under under Klopp about them. If you think of Salah individually, it's the, the, the nation that he carries on his shoulders, football mad nation, very young population of Egypt, going into the World Cup as, as, as the guy that was supposed to, you know, deliver everything for them. Um, it's a complicated, situation politically in Egypt, it's, it's not straightforward to be the icon of that country. The, you know, the, it, it, it just isn't because um, of all sorts of, um, you know, the, the, the place of, of, it's a secular state. So, you know, the Muslim faith and, and, and um, its place in Egypt is, is, is well, without trying to give a history lesson, it's difficult um, to, to tread that balance between being a devout Muslim as Salah is. Um, but in a, in a secular country, and, and he's got incredible um, pressure on his shoulders. So for that not to be draining for him, um, for him to keep performing, keep scoring hat-tricks every week, it's just such an unreasonable expectation. And as Darren points out, you know, 69 goals in 100 games, uh, he's pretty much maintained the consistency of performance. Apart from that dip, he maybe hasn't quite scored the number of goals, but he's still scored, what, 23, 24 goals this season? Maybe we'll get above 25. And this isn't a guy that plays as a traditional centre-forward. It's incredible. Mm. If you look at Liverpool, Darren, where are the potential weak spots? Midfield. Mm. I think that Barcelona's midfield is far superior. 
Cater will be the player that they thought they'd bought next season. There are signs of it at the moment, but I don't think he's quite there mm. yet. Um, Fabinho's been better than most people expected him to be. Um, I don't think Hend Henderson's got the industry, but maybe not the quality, mm. if we're honest, of mm. the Barcelona midfield. Um, and so it could well be in midfield that they're superior. At the back, they're much better than they were. They've got world-class quality. Mm. Um, try saying that three times. In, <laughs> in, in, in between the sticks in Alisson. Van Dijk is a worthy winner of the Player of the Year award because of his impact on that back line, mm. the organisation. I've interviewed Van Dijk before, and he, and he talks about the willingness of the players around him to listen. I've interviewed Gomez on international duty mm. before, and he talks about the guidance that Van Dijk gives him that makes it very easy for him to fit into that tactical structure. But I just think that defensively, they're much better. Now, again, people listening to this and they've got to listen to these mm. people who listen to us will say, well, what about in Europe where they've not been as strong defensively mm. as they have been in the Premier League. But I think in the, the knockout stages where they played Bayern, I think they were much more aware. They've learned and they are learning as they go in, in, in Europe and they're learning from their mistakes. Robertson gave an interview at the weekend where he talked about the fact that they had been hurting from Madrid last yeah. season. Um, and they're learning from their mistakes in that game and from that campaign. And that's why I think that, yeah, Barcelona have the superior quality in midfield and that's why they're able to give Messi the platform to perform. But I think Liverpool, are, 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 I just get the sense that they might feel that they've learned a lot from last mm -hmm. season. Mm -hmm. What have we learned about the sort of collective commitment to our teams in Europe? Now, I mention that because if you look at the Dutch Federation, they cancelled every Eredivisie match this weekend. Uh, to help Ajax prepare for the Tottenham time. Mm -hmm. Tottenham, okay, they had an earlier game on Saturday, but they still, basically, they're running on fumes now. Mm. Why aren't we better at helping our teams in Europe? Well, I, I, mean, I think we have to be realistic and, and understand what powers our football in this country, and it's TV money. So if TV money's going to be the driver, then I, we, it's a business. It has to service television. And I think that's the reason that it's, it's much harder to... You know, the Dutch clubs... Well, Ajax get £9 million a year from TV. You know, it's nothing. So the, 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 they, they can move things around in the Dutch league without this huge commitment to the broadcasters to worry about. Whereas in our country, that, that is the case. So that, I, I think there is willingness on behalf of the authorities, but I, I think realistically it's not going to happen. And I, I think clubs can't really argue about it because what TV money does give you is the power to build a huge squad which is what you, you, you should have done Spurs obviously for different reasons haven't been able to do that but that's the compensation that you get from these big TV deals so I find that a I, I recognise the debate but I, I actually think we look at it the wrong way um, and we should understand what drives our, our, our football and that's the starting point I don't think the FA can do anything about it mm. and the Premier League is just the collection of 20 clubs it's not a governing body people seem to think it is it's just the clubs, and the clubs have decided this is how we run our business. We get the money from TV and blah, blah, blah. So that, that, that's what it is. Yeah. You were at, um, at Tottenham on, on Saturday, Darren. Were there worrying signs of distraction there? Well, without sounding like Nick Clegg, I agree with John. <laughs> <laughs> because um, they, I, they were worrying. I would go so far as saying alarming. In the last 20 minutes of that game, the centre half is a Diop was able to outpace the Tottenham defence. Uh, 
Mikel Antonio was able to outpace the Tottenham defence. They were tired, and I've seen Tottenham a lot this season. They lost their, you know, their, their legs were going um, all over the place. They just looked like a side for whom a long season had caught up, mm. and that concerns me because Tadic, again at the weekend, spoke to Mike McGrath, gave a ter terrific interview in this, and where he, he talked about the fact mm. that they've had a week off. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> they last played last Tuesday, I think it was, mm. and they felt fresh, they felt ready. Now you could look at it in two ways. Maybe Spurs might feel battle hardened and, and ready to go again with the enthusiasm and the realization that this, for some of them this may never come again. Yeah. But on the flip side, it could well be uh, that maybe Ajax are so rested and energized, and you know that that they're rearing to go. Um, but it did look for me at the weekend, certainly. And, and, and Pochettino admitted it afterwards as well. He said, you know, we're, we're tired and stressed. Well, goodness mm. me, a West Ham side has mm. nothing come faster than Isotiop, you know, and he managed to get past. <laughs> and it was only through, you know, the fact that he's not used to it that he got into the penalty box and it wasn't really a shot, really. It was just a, an effort, a sort of cursory effort. Mm. But I think as far as Spurs are concerned, there were concerns, uh, there, there were worries about that, that anyone of a Spurs persuasion should be alarmed by. Mm. As you say, it's all about getting a big squad. Yeah. They had the chance, but passed on it. They did, um, and it probably was the wrong thing to do. But you know, they, you have to recognise also they've, they've been able to build this incredible stadium and maintain, you know, keep the balance books, keep the players. Over, I'm really reluctant to criticise Daniel Levy overall because what he's done is absolutely mm. unbelievable over 15 to 20 years. But in in this year cycle they, they they probably did need to add someone Pochettino clearly thinks so He's, he, he makes veiled references to it all the time and I just think it's, it is catching up with them they've had an injury crisis they've been unlucky but that's why you have a big they need Sissoko to be fit yeah. don't they can I just add to that though I mean it was very interesting because every time we do an interview and we did one just before the game ahead of uh, Palace and um, it was supposed to be Daniel Levy gave a, a sort of 10, 12 mm. us a, a presentation before that game. And it was we were all getting ready to write big pieces ahead of um, the match. And then Pochettino gave a little briefing to us where he says, all very well us talking about being a big club, yeah. but we've got to spend big money. Yeah. And and so suddenly he'd completely upstaged him. And obviously by the end of that first win, he was like, I love Daniel Levy and Daniel <laughs> Levy loves me and whatever else. But what is quite interesting about all of that was that in 442 magazine, Frankie De Jong at Ajax said Spurs tried to buy me yeah. last summer yeah. mm. and the only reason I didn't go was because I felt I needed one more season at Ajax before I moved to a bigger club. Now, I, I don't know how much Frankie De Jong would have cost at yeah. that point. Yeah, uh, maybe. 30 million maybe. Exactly, not, not, not I mean, relative, in relative terms. Good point, Dan. Look at, look at Jack Grealish. I think, I think they were very close to buying him last summer. Um, Villa wanted over 20, around 20. And they wouldn't go to that. Now Jack Grealish has matured and is probably worth 40. Mm. So that, that, that's where you are. It might, it, and Spurs used to be so good at those deals, mm. didn't they? Mm. Just getting players mm. just before anyone else tried to get them when they were on the way up. And they, they have stopped doing that. But their recruitment department splintered, didn't it? Yeah. When, when, when Paul Mitchell went yes. to, you know, uh, to Germany. Think, yeah. And you know, he was put on gardening leave for a long time. They didn't really adequately replace him. It's the off-the-pitch stuff that has an impact on the pitch, isn't it? It is, it is. And, and I think we're getting more and more aware of that. You know, Norwich 
going up at the weekend was, was an incredible story, but the recognition that it's not just the manager, but this incredible work that Stuart Webber, the sporting director, that's being made. And, and I think fans are now getting much more aware of what it takes to build squads. Look at how, look at Liverpool, they hardly make a wrong signing. You know, two, two three years of fabulous signings. Spurs used to do that. You know, there was a period where they just had this golden touch in the transfer market. And it was the Gareth Bales and the Aaron Lennons and yeah. you know, Delhi maybe was the last one where they just plucked a talent that everyone was looking at, but they had the bottle to do it and, and do it at exactly the right time. Since then, the signings have sort of been your Laurentis and your Janssens and Sissoko that's worked out, but it, you know, it was a World Cup player. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a sort of gem that they were unearthing. And I suppose if they're going to continue to, to try and make the books balanced, they, they are going to need to go back and find different recruitment people maybe to get them back to, to, to that sort of money ball thing that they used to be able to do. Because mm. the IX model is admirable, isn't it? You know, that team is assembled for around about 25 million euros. Mark Overmars is the technical director, been there since 2012, working with Edwin van der Sar. On the principle that Man United are trying to apply, old players coming back understand the traditions of the club. What can we learn from IX? Well, I did the UEFA uh, media day uh, where, where the prospective managers who want to do the, the, the licence, they come and they sit in front of the mm. journalists and we put them through their paces. Peter Schmeichel did it. Mm. And he talked about wanting to become a technical director in the same mould as Edwin van der Sar mm. for very similar reasons because he believes that if you have that joined up thinking at a club, people within that structure who know all about the ethos of the club, the profile of the players mm. that you want to sign, the football you want to play. If you have that kind of joined up thinking, then you can produce a team like Ajax. And now Daily Blind is a really good example of that because when Daily Blind was at Manchester United, some people saw him as a weak link and mm. would say, well, don't mind if we get rid of him. You'd put him in the Ajax side mm. now and he's part of a defensively organised, mm. tactically sound, very well-balanced Ajax team that continue to surprise people that underestimate mm. them. And, he, you know, why do we think Spurs will get past Ajax? Because we underestimate them. Mm. <laughs> we don't, they're not the big name. But the fact is that within that structure, there are a group of players, A, that trust each other, B, that are young and dynamic, C, are well-organised. And so can we learn anything from them? Absolutely yeah. we can. If we stop being as arrogant as we are, if we stop thinking that it's about players that make teams rather than teams yeah. off the pitch and on the pitch that make te good teams like Ajax, yeah, we can learn a lot. And it's telling that behind Ajax, there's this, this two incredibly successful former footballers in, in Van der Sar and, and Overmars, but very educated as well. You know, they've, they've, they've educated themselves too, so it's not just stepping off the pitch and doing that. But there was a recognition last year when De Jong and, and De Ligt and Van der Beek, um, Onana were, all the clubs in Europe were looking at these, these young guys and Overmars and Van der Sar went to them, showed them the video, you can become legends mm. at Ajax if you stay, give us one more year. But they realised that they also needed to back that up by giving the players something back and, and it was signing Dusan Tadic and Daily Blind because their knowledge of dressing rooms and what it takes to be a team mm. told them that we can't expect these kids to do it by themselves. They're going to need just a little bit of an extra ingredient, probably some experience. Mm. And those two were incredibly important signings. And the chemistry is now there in the Ajax team. And it's a chemistry that takes you back to 95 when there was a similar vibe with, with Rijkaard and Danny Blind in a young team. And of course, that's what Overmars and Van der Sar 
remember from their playing days. Real synergy is done. So. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's elements of a, a crusade in this one, isn't there? And when you've got that emotional intensity, it's very difficult to stop. Can we look at the English game in a, in a slightly different way? The gap that has developed this season between City and Liverpool and the rest of the top six, it's huge. What does that say about the modern game? Is this just a one-off, like maybe Leicester's title win was, or is it something which is a precursor of something to come? Mm. I, I don't think it's a precursor of something to come because I think that they're... I don't believe the two top teams will gallop over the horizon. Um, I know there's a sharp intake of breath, so... No, 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 <laughs> it's a couple... <laughs> we're, we're getting big questions today. We're dealing with the big stuff. No groin strains today. It's, it's, it's just put the world to right. Uh, I, I think if you look at, at Spurs, they're at a point now, it's quite a make or break point really, because I think Pochettino's future, and I know this is a dramatic thing to say, so I'm going to try to say it in as considered a way I can, but I think Pochettino's been quite strident about the fact that he wants more investment on a number mm. of occasions. And I wonder if his future might rely on whether he gets mm. that investment this season. Uh, long term I think as far as United are concerned they are trying to move away from commercial opportunities and sponsorship and trying now to build a team a proper team they've got the the finance to be able to do that Emery's job again relies on them having to build a team I think they may have spent as little as they did in January because they want to go big in the summer uh, and of course schizophrenic Chelsea who, mm. who you know footballing terms who you know one season they maybe all over the place the next season. Now, obviously, they're going to be affected by a potential transfer ban. Mm. So for them, it might be far more difficult. But then that might lead to a reliance on the young players that go scandalously underused from their academy, yeah. who they could maybe now put a bit of faith in. So, no, I, I, I don't... Obviously, the two top teams will build from a position of strength mm. and, and Guardiola is looking to... You know, invest even more heavily in his midfield, but I think the teams behind could mm. catch them up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there has been a gap, but if you look at the bit of the season I've almost enjoyed the most, has been Watford, Wolves, mm. Leicester. In this last period, you can see wannabe teams who want to bridge that gap doing fantastic things that you can imagine in two or three years' time joining, certainly catching up Manchester United. Chelsea and Arsenal and, this, and this mm. maybe Spurs as well. I, I can see Wolves making the top four next season. That wouldn't be out of the question, Mike. I, I agree. It depends how they invest, of course, but with the manager, with the talent that they've got. And I don't think Leicester potentially are that far behind. Mm. If, if the, 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 the four of the big six that are underperforming continue underperforming, of course they've got the muscle to reassert themselves. But I actually think that, 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 that there's a lot of hope for a more competitive Premier League in, in the next couple of seasons. Everton as well. I mean, I'm still not entirely sure about them, but I have to say last few weeks have been, have been pretty impressive. And of course, they've got the potential as well. Just to back up what you're mm. saying, you know, people look at, for example, Liverpool. They were 25 points behind City last mm. season and they're in a title race with them. People look at Spurs. They spent no money in the summer, but they've got organisation mm. and... and a, a, an almost alchemist in charge of them mm. to, to be able to get them to where they are. Nuno is a guy that's been looked at by a lot of clubs higher up the chain, you know, and again, he, he, he is somebody that the players buy into totally. As you say, George Mendes allows them to be able to get players that otherwise wouldn't even be able to have a conversation with their agents and, and other mm. clubs about. So 
there are various reasons why those top clubs, why those clubs outside the top six mm -hmm. would have a way of breaking in. And also, you know, you look at Arsenal in disarray yesterday. You know, they're, they're, the arrogance of some of the established order, that there is a balance mm -hmm. of power that is shifting in the Premier League. And some of those clubs who were able to rely on victories, even on the strength of their yeah. name now, are not able to do so because this top division is so competitive. Mm. That's, you know, we can't you know, go through this without talking about the possibility of, of Brendan Rodgers doing mm. um, Liverpool a favour yeah. against City. Um, you know, Leicester's a club you know well. Yeah. Um, what mm -hmm. type of impact has he had there and can he do it? Yes, he can. He'd love to. You finally win a title for Liverpool, etc. Um, he's had exactly the impact so far that he was he, he was brought in to have, which is turn this very talented young group of players into something more dynamic, more coherent, playing a sort of distinctive brand of football. I think Puel was trying to do some of these things, but the coherence wasn't quite there. Maybe the personality wasn't quite there. I think Brendan has taken... A group that, you know, I saw I, I, a fan put on Twitter this week, the Manchester United first 11 beside the Leicester first 11 and said, well, which would you rather have? And there was an argument for saying, well, if I was building a club for the next three years, the Leicester one. Yeah. Have they got the clout to keep uh, Tielemans? It's complicated because, unfortunately for Leicester, he's really put himself in the shop. Everyone's out, everyone will be after him, won't they? Spurs... First in the queue, maybe, but yeah, everyone will be after him. He was already valued at about 40 million, it's probably 60, 70 now. What Leicester have got in their favour is um, they've got Silva on loan at Monaco, who's done really well, who I think Monaco want to keep. That might give them an in, some kind of sort of deal. And, and he clearly enjoys playing um, in that Leicester team um, for Brendan Rodgers. So he's, th there's something there, but I fear for Leicester on that deal, actually, that he might just have played a little bit too well and, and, and got himself <laughs> gobbled up by someone else. But you know what? There's other great talents in that in that club, and I think they will throw some money at it. I think that's one of the reasons Brendan came, that, that he, he will be allowed to continue building a team and this, this incredible training ground coming on stream. So I think they'll continue to attract really good players and, and continue to grow as a team. Mm. What about Manchester United, uh, Darren? You know, you spoke about let's move away from the commercial side and let's remember we're a football club. There has to be a huge clear out there, doesn't there? Yeah, I think there does. Mm. A lot obviously depends on the will of the players to leave because if you're on fat contracts like Alexis Sanchez, for example, then the deal has to be right for you mm. rather than for the club. But I think that... Because some of the wages they're paying is extraordinary. Like extraordinary. Rocco, £160,000 a week. And, 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 and <laughs> this is why there is such a massive desperation to get into the Champions League, because if they don't, then of course they've got to keep trying to attract players by paying huge sums of money. Uh, the interesting thing was a conversation that Roy Keane and uh, Graham Souness were having the other day where Keane says, if you were a top player and you wanted to win things, would you go to Manchester United? Yeah. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was fairly uncompromising from Roy Keane. Uh, but Sooners actually ultimately had to agree with him because I think if you look at United at the moment, there was a wonderful piece by Marina Hyde the other day where she wrote about, you know, when they've stopped focusing on their pillow sponsors and their mm. this sponsor and their that sponsor and their other sponsor, mm. they might want to start focusing on the football, you know. And, and at the moment, they have 
been looking in the wrong direction and not at the pitch. And they've been buying players to appeal to their stakeholders rather than to the people who actually matter. Is it time to get the green and gold scarves out again? If you look at it, yeah. the Glazers, that, that leverage buyout has cost Manchester United a billion pounds. Yeah, it's cost them a billion pounds. It's cost them supremacy in English football. Let's mm. be honest, they continued winning under Ferguson, but you know, I could have owned the football club and Ferguson would have, would have kept winning. And they've allowed themselves, through lack of a coherent plan on the football side of things, to, to fall so far behind two teams at the exact opposite in, in Liverpool and Manchester City. It's cost them a lot. And what can fans do apart from protest? Um, mm. I, I, look, I don't want to tell fans of any club what to do, but you know, I, I would, I would sort of be inwardly applauding if I saw the green and gold back. Yeah, at least you were applauding with your hands and not with clappers. They put clappers on the seats, <laughs> yeah, clapper, didn't they? <laughs> the, the, you know, the tide of plastic in football is getting stronger by the week, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There well, used to be a football club at um, Old Trafford. Plastic, yeah, it's, it's a good word, yeah. And, and you know, we see flags on seats and trinkets and you know I mean so suddenly the half and half scarf isn't the most egregious sight when you <laughs> when you go to a football match yeah that's, that's another thing actually you know we've got to think about football as an industry and you know without getting too right on there's, there's an environmental thing as well you know you see a football stadium after everyone leaves and it's just full of rubbish mm. absolute rubbish mm. some would say at Chelsea the rubbish, rubbish has been on the pitch <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sarri's Sarri talking about uh, yeah I'll get you a title in two years mm. he won't be around to do that will he? Well, I, do you know the interesting thing I saw that um, headline on the front of the Telegraph in my opinion it said Sarri I'll, get, I'll close the gap with the top by 2021, I was thinking they want it to be done by next yeah. week, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think he means with Juventus. I don't think he means with Chelsea. <laughs> Might win Serie A in two I, years. I, honestly, I, I, I think that um, there's almost a perfect storm at Chelsea. Uh, absentee owner, uh, star player leaving in the summer, his heir apparent, oh, well, heir apparent, the young player who could be taking over a McCallum Hudson Odoi, injured, and goodness mm. knows when he'll come Sad back. That. Mm average team um, if you look at the, the the form guide yes they've won away from home but the teams they've won against have been fairly weak as soon as they've come up against any sides that are fairly decent well organised they've come unstuck mm. um, I was at Chelsea on Monday night for the Burnley game Burnley are well organised mm. did what Burnley needed to do to get the points I have no mm. not one iota of, of problem with that mm. at all what and about the, the Europa League Johnny, they've got Eintracht Frankfurt, mm. fantastic fan base. Mm. Um, not a bad team. If you look at it, they beat Marseille, Lazio, Shakhtar, Inter, Benfica to get to the semi finals. Yeah. They'll fancy their chances as well. When we were talking about Liverpool earlier yeah. on, they'll fancy their chances. Of course they will. Um, they've done well in the Bundesliga in terms of their expectations. They've got some decent players, particularly in the forward areas. Um, you know, I like Rebic, who, who was very good for Croatia in the in the World Cup, um, they, if they've done their homework on Chelsea, will see a team that's really plummeted in terms of, since December, in, t in terms of good performances, even even managed to make Manchester United look half-decent at football on, on, on Sunday. Um, they, they, they will fancy it. And anything other than Chelsea at the best, I think, will, 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 will not be enough. Apparently, the, the coach... Um, Huta, I think his name yeah. is. Yeah, the Swiss um, guy. He, um, he's got a very 
a well-organized defense. He's got a very uh, dynamic way of thinking. He wants his teams to attack. Yeah. He doesn't want his teams to sit back, park the bus or whatever else. He'd like, rather lose 5-4 than 1-0. Than as well as Rebic, there's uh, Sebastian Haller mm -hmm. in their attack as well. Luka Jovic, everyone is raving yeah. about. They all want him yeah. because he's, he's, he's a goal machine. And mm -hmm. uh, th th this season, that they reckon they've only ever won one uh, tro European trophy. I think it was UEFA Cup yeah. in 1980. But as far as the club are concerned, they believe that this is a season where that might change. There's a real optimism around mm -hmm. the club. Uh, there is a real feeling that this is a club that no matter who they face, yeah. that they can beat them because they're not reliant on any one player. The side is well balanced. The approach is the right approach for them. And I think whereas Chelsea, to a large extent, rely on Eden Hazard, and if, it do, if he doesn't make something happen, you kind of struggle to see whereas, because Higuain looks, just looks horrendous at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think Frankfurt could get passes. Mm. Mm. What about Arsenal? They were knocked out in the semi-finals last year by the eventual winners, Atletico. They got Valencia, more Spanish opposition. Mm. So, logically, Emery will know what's coming. Mm. Um, will the defence? <laughs> well, it's a good... I mean, that's a good question. I mean, they are playing in the Unai Emery Cup, so they might, they might have <laughs> half a chance of winning. It. But um, that defence just defies um, description sometimes. And... They seem to be in a phase of, of, of you know, it's like the United defence, but it might actually be worse. Every single person they put in is worse than the, the last one, you know. I mean, <laughs> Jenkinson and Mustafi and, you know, I think Socrates has been overrated this year. I don't see what the top class player is there. Koscielny... Go back to calling him Socrates, not Socrates. Socrates. That's almost like a heresy. <laughs> oh, I know, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, Koscielny looks like he's on his last legs physically. And I have a sympathy for Emery because he's been dealt a really bad hand in terms yeah. of that, that, that group of players. But it's a worse, it's a worse squad overall than United's and, and he's he's having to do a similar job. Um but they haven't had much trouble in, in the Unai Emery Cup. He's shown pretty sort of firm grasp of what it takes to win it. And Valencia are no great shakes either. So I I, I think it's it's there for Arsenal to, to win that one. Okay. You know, big handbrake turn now. Let's look at the relegation uh, fight. Logic says that Cardiff, who have to win their last two games, you know, realistically, won't make it. And probably they went down on uh, last weekend at Fulham. Um, what about logic? Do we have to obey that? I think we do. I think we do. Mm. Because I think if there was going to be a chance for them to do it, it would have been against a side already relegated. It was almost like a free hit. You know, they, they, their appetite should have been stronger than the Fulham side who are in pieces and, in, you know, the, a lot of the players will be well aware that Scott Parker believes that they're not right for the club and he's going to move them on in the summer. And yet Fulham were able to beat them. Sean Morrison, great chance right at the end, should have put that away to at least get the point that would have kept them in with the hunt. Instead, he didn't do it. And for me, I think the right team is staying up. And that, the, I say that advisedly because I think it would have been a wonderful achievement for Warnock to stay up. But at the same time, I think the job Chris Hutton has done at Brighton, I am staggered. And I think it's a scandal that he doesn't even get linked with better clubs. You know, the idea that they could have got rid of him or they could get rid of him regardless of whether they stay up or not is a disgrace, really. Because but this there's a little, is a man there's who's there's little whispers going around now that it wouldn't be a surprise if Chris Hutton left Brighton yeah. in the summer after keeping yeah. him up. Yeah. Well, that fair? Well, my, my, I, I agree with Dan about the job he's done. Um, 
my fear for him is that it's it's a club that's got a particular model, which is the owner is kind of in charge of recruitment and spent fairly big in, in their terms. They brought in, in Dan summer. Ashworth to you know, do they, the overall yeah. big picture stuff, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, and they already had John Marling, a kind of director of football already. Mm. So there's a lot of people there doing recruitment and, and trying to build a club. And they spent, as I say, they bought quite a few players in the summer for reasonable prices by their standards. And the team hasn't improved in they terms of results. Actually, yeah, and what experience tells you is that when that happens, it's, it's not the guys in charge that, that take the hit for it. It's usually the coach that gets blamed. We've bought you these good players and you should have done better with them. That, that tends to be how it ends up. I'd be problem, sad if it was like that. Well, the problem I have with that is that even if allowing for those players that they've bought, if you look at that side, mm. it's the squad. It's an inferior squad yeah, to is, the players yeah. above it. Mm. And so for him to be able to keep them competitive and keep them in the division is a, is a terrific job. And, you know... Our colleagues have, who have been to games, and I know one particular one that, that he and I have had a bit of toing off from saying they haven't scored in however long, you know. But what do you expect Hewton to do? Open up and be ripped apart yeah. like the really naive Huddersfield. You know, Jan Seifert there is probably the most naive manager. I don't, he's made no positive impact on that no. squad whatsoever. Now, if Hewton opens up and gets ripped apart, he's done for. What he's done is kept it tight, scrapped for, and, and, and eked his way to that little cushion that keeps them above Cardiff. For me, with that squad, fantastic. There's no pace in that front line. No, not really. at all. And Glenn Murray's struggling, isn't he, at the moment? He's oh, he's 35, for instance. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I mean, what a great career, but he's struggling. And and after that, those two terrible results that they had, Bournemouth and Cardiff, he has, he has, Chris has managed to get a reaction and he's he, he's done a very sensible kind of bit of coaching and just said, right, back to basics mm. and we're going to work and we're going to fight. And you can see the effort they're putting in and that tells you he is still having an impact as a coach. Okay. Just like to finish on, you know, we're in award season. Um, you know, last night, PFA, Virgil van Dijk was their player <coughs> of the year. Um, somehow Raheem Sterling was the young player <laughs> of the year. Um, you know, Raheem is uh, um, been named this morning you know, in the Football Writers Association as Footballer of the Year with uh, Nikita Parrish. Uh, so you've got a she's the female player of the year. So you've got Manchester City double. Just like to end, we've spoken a lot about Sterling yeah. in the past. How important is it? Because our our award is about example being set yeah. as much as what you do on the pitch. He does set an example, doesn't he? He does. He does. I mean, it, I think. I think the right decisions have been made for both awards, actually. I think Van Dijk's been the best player in the league and the PFA award is about purely playing. And our Football Writers Award is, is about playing, but it's also about precept and example and, and the impact someone might have beyond the football pitch. And I think not only has Raheem been maybe the second or third best player in the league, but he has, whether... He set out to do this or not. I think he has helped affect what feels to me like a bit of a sea change in our industry. I'm not going to talk for fans because I'm not, still not sure exactly where we are in terms of changing society. That's a big, big question. But in terms of our industry, um, when you've got the best black player in the country, best English black player anyway, um, making the statement that he did when he, when he took the media to task after the, the Chelsea abuse and has prompted... Um, rightly the sort of thinking and soul searching that needed to happen I think that's really important I wouldn't also be in any way complacent and say just because he's got an award and just because we've done a bit of soul searching 
everything's fine now. Hopefully what he's done is started our industry on the first steps of a journey. You know, it's, as I say, a long, long way to go. But I don't know what you think, Darren, but it feels that there has been a bit of a shift this year and, and he's done it by his by, by his, his actions and that's, that, that's, that's really important. Yeah, I suspect those words will resonate with you, mate. Well, absolutely, mm. because I think, I think Sterling has changed football forever, mm. uh, certainly our industry forever. Um, and I agree with what you're saying about we can't talk about outside of the bubble, but we can only talk about what affects football. Mm. And um, not only has he changed the industry uh, and forced the industry to look at itself, but he's also empowered other people. Yeah, so you've really had important. a lot of other people saying what they wouldn't have dared to say. Mm. For, for me, as a black man, black journalist, having been in this industry and heard a lot of people say some of the things they're now saying publicly in private, but too afraid to say them in uh, publicly mm. because they're worried about the impact yeah. it might have at work, with their club, whatever else. It's massively pleasing because I think for too long, people have had to be worried about the impact of being honest. Yeah. And it's allowed a culture within our sport to fester that we think we're dealing with by saying that racism has no place in our society and you know doing all of the cursory things, yeah, but not actually doing anything about the problem. And I still think now within our game, we are still laboring under the misapprehension that we're gonna deal with the problem by other methods rather than the zero tolerance methods, like points, like yep. holding grounds, like threatening clubs and fans that if you do this sort of thing, you will affect your club. But what Sterling has done for players is he's given them that voice to say, we're not having it. And I think in years to yeah. come, we may think about him like we thought about, well, like we think about Bosman, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. in, in a great, such a strong, strong way, because that's the measure of the impact that he's had on our game. Yeah, yeah I agree. Virgil van Dijk is a modern colossus, uh, Ron Yates for a new generation, if you like. Sterling, though, is a modern role model. Praise and prizes are nice, but he deserves, actually his status demands action. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com